Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today I'm joined by Tim Sukamel. Tim, how are you doing, man? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, it's good to have you here. Uh, before we dive into the topic today, just go ahead and give the listeners your background, who you are, and what you're doing today. I'm currently an associate professor at Carroll University in Waukesha, Wisconsin. This is now my seventh year, I believe, here. In addition to um, working as a faculty member, I also serve as the director of our graduate program in sport physiology and performance coaching, and also as the director of our sport performance institute. So as you can imagine, the, the business card is quite full. Yeah, right. And then, so from that, like the sports performance side, just so I, I think I know the answer to this because I've asked you, but just so the listener knows, you do some coaching as well, right? Because you're at a you're at a D three school, so you also do some strength and conditioning as as part of your role. Yeah. So for the past several years, this year was an exception, but for the past several years, I've actually been the head performance coach for our volleyball team here. But okay. in my role, I, I almost serve as it's not a, an official title, so I guess I can't say it, but I'm serving in somewhat of a head role because we don't have a head strength and conditioning coach here. So all of our students within our graduate program serve as the strength and conditioning coaches with the caveat that all of their programs are reviewed by myself or other human mm -hmm. performance staff. And then all of them are also evaluated. They're obviously certified before they go on the floor as well. Sure. Yeah, that's that's such a cool thing. I mean, I, I think you and I have probably had so many conversations about what should happen and what needs to happen about like education, you know, particularly at the undergrad level, but the grad level, too, because while more prevalent, it's probably not as prevalent as it should be, meaning you need to have practical experience as you're getting the in-class education. And so I just think, yeah, the fact that Carol is doing that is pretty awesome. And you've got to, I would think you would be the only D3 school or school of that size that's really trying to integrate everything. I mean, I like to think that that's one of the one of the things that kind of makes our program really unique is uh, we have aspects of everything in here. So, yeah. you know, the students, their primary goal is for most of them is to come through the program and become a strength and conditioning coach at, you know, high school, collegiate, professional, whatever level. The best thing you can do is give them experience doing it. So they're going to yeah. learn from their mistakes and they're going to, you know, improve, get feedback from all of us and then, you know, improve that way. But again, in, unless you give them the opportunity, it, it's one thing to to shadow. It's another mm. thing to actually be <laughs> hands on on the floor and, and do that. So in addition to that, we expose them to the sports science side of things where within the Performance Institute, all the students work within it. But we test and monitor basically all the teams. I'm not going to say all. It's yeah. most of the teams that we have several times throughout the year. And some teams are testing weekly. So being able to give themselves that feedback, but also have the experience of communicating that data to their athletes, to the coaches, mm -hmm. to the AD who's involved with our, uh, or one of the ADs involved with our human performance staff, you know, it prepares them for everything that they're going to be doing at, at the, especially at the collegiate level. So 
Yeah. yeah, the fact that we are a, a very small D3, we only have about 3,500 students here. I'd say we are one of, uh, if not the only program doing this at this level, especially within the states. So yeah. I, I'm not going to say the country because I just don't know what goes on in right. other places. Yeah. But definitely in, within the state, we're probably doing this to a larger scale than other programs are. So. Talk about your research for a second, because you mentioned that you are, you're monitoring the athletes, you're, you're actually coaching them. So you're integrating the monitoring with their training. Are they your subjects when it comes to your research or is that completely separate? Well, the research is very broad. So all, any and all things sport performance, we're obviously interested in here. We have an ethics put in where we can use that monitoring data for research purposes. That hasn't been the main focus of our research um, as of now. You know, we want to use it for the original purpose, which is to, you know, test and monitor the athletes and evaluate our programs and everything. So short answer is yes, we've used uh, athletes in that regard for that information. Several of my students, uh, as part of their research projects, will actually use that information to present abstracts at like the regional and national level. We'll have some at a national NSCA this summer. In addition to that, other other research that they're involved in is all things strength power. So we've done a, a number of projects on weightlifting movements and derivatives, different types of jump variations, you know, hex bar jump squat, jump shrug. Currently, we're doing some projects with accentuated eccentric loading, with which I know is one of the main topics we're going to talk about today. So back squat and, and jumps with that. But yeah, that's the that's the kind of the third aspect of our program, if you will, is the students get exposed to the research process and, and research in general. So in my yeah. opinion, all of our students should be able to justify every aspect of their program. And the way that they do that is continue to read, but also kind of use the, the scientific process or research process to say, okay, here's a problem. How do we solve? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we'll, de- <clears throat> we'll definitely dive into the accentuated eccentrics later in the episode. Before we get there, I, I just have a kind of a curiosity as a former Division three athlete and for any you know, coaches at that level that might be listening. How how does the fact that D3 cannot, quote unquote, require athletes to be at or outside of sport, you know, training, does that, you know, does that impact your data at all? Or does it go the other way? Does Does the fact that you're doing this really improve attendance? Yeah, trust me, it, it, having having coached at the D1 level when I was doing my my PhD, it's always nice when you know the athletes have to be there. Um, you know, it's a requirement, like yeah. you will be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at the D3 level, you know, we obviously can't require it, but we can, quote, heavily encourage them to be there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, we, we never told the line of requiring people to be there and everything, but, you know... At a small D3, what you end up with is a lot of athletes who are still almost in the developmental stage, I would argue. So they, you have the diamonds in the rough yeah, who you know, are just, they're freak athletes. They could be D1 athletes, but you know, whether they didn't get the scholarship they wanted or, or you know, yeah. variety of scenarios. I do think that a lot of them, especially the women, are just thankful to have someone, have someone there that actually 
cares about them in terms of mm. developing their program or developing them as an athlete, but also just giving them the attention that they deserve when it comes to development. So having sure. worked with the volleyball team here for a number of years, you know, you, they almost get, uh, and I'm not, this isn't just a, a, a female thing. I've had some of them send me like emails and say, you know, thank you so much for your time. And, mm -hmm. you know, that you, you, you made us better and everything. And, you know, I save all of those just, yeah. you know, as a, especially if I'm having a bad day. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I do think that D3 athletes in general, like they're, they're competitive. They want to win too. Mm -hmm. So as long as that's kind of the team atmosphere and they understand yeah. the overall process, like I do think that you're going to be able to get good data from them. But also what I try to reiterate to all of them, because I usually talk with all the athletes before they go through a testing session is like, look, if you don't give us max effort during this, it's not helping, you know, it's not helping you in the long yeah. run because mm -hmm. we want to be able to provide you with the best indicators of, yeah. are you improving? Yeah. Because if you give us, you know, half-ass effort here and then you come in and max test another time, it's going to look like you improve, but you may not have. Exactly. So, or vice versa, if you test really well once and then you don't try this time because you just mm -hmm. don't want to, yeah. then it's not going to give us really any indicator. Yeah. Now, with volleyball, what we had done in the past is we were doing weekly jump testing in the off season and during the season for a variety of reasons. But I tell the girls every single time they came in that I need you to give me max effort because if we're tracking your performance and how you respond to the training that we're giving you, I, I need to know that this isn't just like a one off of like you not trying, because if you just yeah. see a massive dip in performance when I'm expecting you to improve, then I'm going to have to reevaluate your program. Now, again, you know, one week is one week, but sure. if it's multiple weeks, then we can obviously have a conversation. about Yeah. That. So I know it's a very long winded answer to, yeah. to what you have <laughs> do think that they they do care and I do think we can get good data despite the fact that they it's more on a voluntary basis. I guess the only thing that we may run into is, um, you know, sometimes you'd be like, oh, I have a, you know, a scheduling conflict. I'm not going to be there. So and, and again, yeah. we deal with it the best that we can. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned all that because, you know, it just it highlights the importance of like. It's just a two-way street when it comes to all this. It's a two-way street of like, yes, you're trying to help them, but like they're helping you in the sense that they need to give you quality data points to draw and make conclusions from. And, you know, you are hopefully using those data points to inform training and inform their programming. So if you're not getting quality data points, then like the whole process is kind of moot. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd say the the other aspect to it is I can't make I can't you you know we can't make people care, you know you can't coach desire you can't make people care. But the the other side of that is the coaches because what I try to get across to all of them is like, look, I'm not just collecting this data to use for research, and I try to tell them it's like, look, I've been here for seven years, and I haven't published a single paper with this data. But all of them, not all of them, but some of them may believe that I'm just using this data and they're never going to see it. And I'm like, no, you're the first people to see it. Like, because <laughs> yep. these are your athletes. If we happen to use it for research later, that's 
like that's off to the side. That's not yeah, the first that's goal. That's like cherry on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we end, and again, there's never enough time to write. Uh, that's a that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, I, I try to get across to the coaches like, look, we're collecting this data for you and for your athletes. It's not necessarily for me or my students. It's it, there. Cool. Yeah. We can go back and look at it later, but it's all retrospective in that instance. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's really, really awesome stuff. And one of your research areas is eccentric training methods. And you've got a few papers out on, on those on, on eccentric training. But, you know, those are I mean, those came out a few years ago already, which is kind of crazy because in my head, they're still like brand spanking new. <laughs> they're probably still the most updated or recent, you know, overall reviews on on eccentric training. But obviously, like there's you're actively researching there's new stuff that might have come out since then but before we dive into like really the nuances let, let's just this like define like eccentric training or eccentric training methods because the term gets thrown around all the stinking time and i think there's just maybe a lack of understanding what it truly is or what you know is there a threshold that makes something an actual eccentric training method that will lead to the adaptations that are desired so if you can give an overview of eccentric training, let's start there. Yeah, so I, I guess the the term eccentric training obviously refers to the muscle action where it's going to be active lengthening of, of a muscle. So obviously we have the concentric side of things, which is the shortening and isometric, which is, you know, the muscle isn't changing length, but it's still producing force. So eccentric with the active lengthening um, I guess when we refer to eccentric training, we're focused on the emphasis of the eccentric phase or the breaking phase of a movement. So if we take a squat, for example, we're generally talking about the active slowing down on the lowering part of the, uh, of the movement. But this is also, you could also qualify an eccentric action or training when someone is practicing a landing. So they come down and stop or, mm-hmm. um, Obviously, a push with some of the research right now is horizontal deceleration. So being able to stop yourself horizontally or linearly, a lot of that, as long as there's an emphasis on the braking component of it or the, again, the eccentric phase, that's, I guess, what we would qualify as eccentric training. Now, as you can imagine, there's a few caveats to it. There's different types and methods of it. When we say the term accentuated eccentric loading, that's a different type of eccentric training compared to tempo eccentric training mm. or possibly negatives. So, but uh, then there's flywheel training and that's another very common one. There's eccentric cycling, but there's also other terminology that's been recently introduced like accelerated eccentric training. So some of it has to do with the timing component of it, certainly. But how we train the eccentric phase is all on a spectrum, just like training the concentric phase is all on a spectrum as well. Sure. Yeah, some of those terms are, I've, I've not heard of some of those terms. I'm sure uh, accelerated eccentric is probably annoying to you at this point because people are going to get it confused with accentuated eccentric look <laughs> I mean they, they are unique they are unique in terms of like there's a there's a paper out I believe Matt Hanford was the was the lead author of it it's called something like the need for eccentric speed mm-hmm. and the, it's in sports medicine not a nice review of some terminology but accelerated really for, refers to the idea that you may have a, bands or something that are actually 
pulling you down and increasing the speed of the eccentric action. So accelerated in that instance. But, uh, you know, depending on what you're using for like plyometric exercises, like plyos obviously have an eccentric component to it and certainly can provide an effective eccentric stimulus. So yeah. it's, it's just depending on what the goals are at the time. Yeah. I know, you know, but with tempo training, we kind of have to consider the fact that we are lengthening the eccentric phase of it. So anyone who's ever done what we call a tempo exercise, you're usually referring to lengthening a phase of either the eccentric or concentric type phase, or some people may actually do a pause at the bottom of a movement or like a squat and, you know, an ISO hold or whatever right there. But for tempo eccentrics, usually we're seeing tempos anywhere between three and five seconds for the lowering. Most of the time, I'm not going to say all, most of the time, uh, you're going to be using a submaximal load, call it, you know, 60, 70% of someone's max and you're lowering down to a tempo. So 1,001, 1,002, et cetera, before you get down to the bottom and then you perform the concentric phase as quickly as possible. There are negatives. Negatives are obviously going to be a maximal or super maximal load where you are only performing the eccentric phase, but you're controlling it on the way down, likely to a tempo. Some of Cal Dietz's work on, tri on the triphasic side of things talks about that as well, where there may be an emphasis on tempo for, for, some, of the, uh, for some of the eccentric phases. But again, that could be a submaximal, maximal, or possibly super maximal, depending on what the, the goal of the actual phase is. So again, if you're only performing the eccentric action, that's fine if you're working on with tempo, obviously the time under tension, there may be more muscle architectural changes to something like that. When you have a super maximal load, you're obviously not able to perform it concentrically. Yeah. There, there's all caveats to this. Yeah. And obviously this could be, this could be a three hour podcast. We yeah. All of them, but yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, <laughs> there's certain goals that you're trying to get out of that, but yeah. it may not necessarily benefit the concentric phase from a stretch shortening cycle standpoint. Flywheel is obviously its own thing where you have a closed system, whatever mm. you produce concentrically, you have to accept eccentrically. So if you perform a really rapid concentric phase, you have to accept a really rapid concentric phase. But the caveat to this is that because it's through a full range of motion, realistically, and I had a conversation with Marco Beto, and I apologize if I said his name wrong. I asked him once and he's like, yeah, it's right. But I just want to make sure <laughs> that I give him credit. I, I know yeah. mine butchered all the time. So. <laughs> but anyway, he's done a ton of work on flywheel and what I've been what I'd be curious about as well is if someone were to actually perform the concentric as hard as possible, but then stop at a certain spot because it's going to be really high forces within a short period of time. So the breaking demands are often based on how you perform the eccentric phase. Mm. Is it resisted at the beginning and then slowly at the end? Is it fast at the beginning? Is it slow throughout the entire thing? Part of that, yeah. in my opinion, is going to be based on strength and their ability to accept an external load. So obviously plyos are a whole different, whole different thing. And the whole goal is to it's, you know, benefit the concentric side of things, but being able to hold on to those high forces within a short period of time. So before we get into 
AEL. I just wanted to at least give an overview of that. So yeah, we need to. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's make sure we talk about what the goals are. Sure. So, you know, why would we even emphasize? Why would we even, you know, zero in on the eccentric phase? Like what, what are the primary goals? And I guess you can talk about what are the goals people think they're wanting, trying to achieve and what are the goals that we know we can actually achieve? So why would somebody focus on this in the first place? Yeah. So the, the, the most obvious thing is that we are stronger eccentrically than concentrically. Specifically, there's some research that actually suggests that we're about 50% stronger eccentrically than we are concentrically. So people try to tap into, you know, the amount of force that we're able to produce eccentrically. Now, the other caveat to this is if we think about the force velocity relationship, most of the time we think about it from the concentric side of things, where yep. if we're able to produce really high forces, it's generally over a slower velocity. Uh, on the opposite side of things, we have a really low force with a really high velocity. Eccentric training flips that on its head where we end up being able to have really high forces at really high velocities. And the benefit there is that we're, if we're able to produce high forces within a short period of time, we're able to stop more effectively. We're able to slow ourselves down more effectively. And obviously, the method aside, that's one of the emphases. Yeah. Another, another aspect of this is because we're able to produce high forces, that has to come from somewhere. So mechanistically, we are actually able to recruit type 2 motor units a lot more effectively than type 1s. Partially selective recruitment, but the force demands and rate of force demands are much, much higher for these, which is why we're able to recruit those types of motor units. And the other caveat to that is we may be able to shift kind of a, a, a phenotype of some of the actual musculature itself. So almost shifting towards more of a type 2A, type 2X type of hmm. phenotype. There's still some research that needs to be done on For that, sure. but that's at least a thought. Yeah. But uh, yeah, those are, those are the big aspects of it. But because it is a lengthening action as well, we're actually able to possibly change the penation angle of some of our muscles so that they are smaller penation angles, which in the long run actually benefits us from a contraction velocity standpoint. Right. So by lengthening muscles with more force and changing that muscle architecture a little bit, we're actually able to possibly increase um, muscular tenderness stiffness as well as hmm. the contraction velocity on the concentric side sure. of things. So yeah. despite doing eccentrics, you can certainly benefit concentric as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Muscle architecture. I feel like it's like an oft forgotten about uh, aspect of muscle. Like you, you might have learned it in like anatomy. We're like, oh yeah, penation angle. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that if you can change that penation angle, that's a that's a significant adaptation. So listening to you talk, it seems like that for for the application to sport, like a lot of this would benefit things like change of direction and, and the ability to. To change direction is that an accurate like kind of where this is going to benefit athletes the most i mean it could be it could be vertical it could be horizontal there's aspects um that it can contribute to to all so mm. i guess the easiest way to think about this is whether it's vertical or horizontal the idea is that from an eccentric to concentric action because we're able to produce more force eccentrically the goal with this type of training is to raise that ceiling a little bit more eccentrically 
so that when we have a curve and I can see it on my screen, <laughs> we have a yeah. curve here and we're transitioning to a concentric during something like a counter movement jump, yeah. we often see a dip in between and sometimes a pretty significant dip. Mm-hmm. It's all based on strategy, obviously. Sure. But the ability to hold on to higher eccentric forces, um, produce higher eccentric forces, helps us carry over into a higher concentric side of things. Hmm. So the effectively transition. Now, again, if our isometric ability isn't all that great, we're going to see a drop off. If our concentric ability isn't all that great, we're going to see a drop off. You know, ideally, I shouldn't say ideally, if we were all robots and we were looking at forced time curves, you would see zero and then see squares versus curves, right? Hmm. So max force, holding on to max force immediately and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, from a, from a change of direction standpoint, obviously the speeds going into certain changes of direction are going to be a lot higher than they are during something like a counter movement jump. I, well, I shouldn't say all, always higher, sure. but you kind of get where I'm going yeah. at here. Yep. If I'm running and I, you know, I have to linearly and I have to change the direction 180 degrees, it's the sharpest and harshest kind of change of direction that I can have. So I have to be able to slow my momentum down, stop, and then change direction, come back. So there's a lot of work by Tom DeSantos, Damian Harper, that's doing a lot of horizontal change direction stuff right now. And uh, But still, aspects that they talk about are the penultimate steps going into the actual change of direction and the amount of force that needs to be created in certain directions to be able to do that. So Obviously, body mechanics is going to be a big thing when it comes to changing direction, but it still comes down to how someone is able to produce force. Yeah, absolutely. One one quick question I do want to ask about like the goals here, because this is so has been tied to eccentric methods or training for so long. And I'm just I'm curious as to where the evidence is that if you if you're aware of it is hypertrophy, because I feel like that was the original reason people looked at like lengthening the amount of time you would spend in, in, in the eccentric portion is, is like, oh, we're, this is going to produce more hypertrophy. Where is that as far as support goes? You know, it, a lot of it is based in theory, you yeah. know, but I would also make the argument, you know, theory's fine because we also, we also train based on theory too. Mm. You know, in theory, this potentiation complex is going to do this, you know, in theory, yeah. these rest periods are going to be optimal for, for this group. So, but again, you know, theory is theory until we have additional evidence, you know, we, we want to make sure we support our, our theories behind it. So, but yeah, I would agree with you that a lot of the emphasis with eccentric training was probably placed on hypertrophy initially, just because the ability to, you know, we'd take bodybuilders, for example, if they're doing an eccentric bicep curl. Obviously it's going to feel difficult, but they, you know, not to say that they wouldn't know why they were doing it, but they're like, ah, I can handle a lot of load doing this. You know, <laughs> if someone helps me up here, then I can do, you know, I can do another rep and that type of thing. But yeah, I think anytime we're talking about tempo, especially, there's going to be an increase in the time under tension and possibly the, you know, depending on the load you're using, the ability to use heavier loads than you would normally use. Yeah. And obviously when it comes to hypertrophy, there's different mechanisms of hypertrophy, you know, tension, damage, metabolic alterations. But one of the main drivers, if not the main driver of hypertrophy is going to be tension. So the amount of tension created within the muscle 
can be dictated by the load that you're using and the actions that you're using within that muscle group. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. That was, yeah, I just, I always wondered like, where's this at? Like, where's the research at on this? It's always linked to eccentric. I know, I know there's a group at at East Tennessee State that's doing a project Mm. right now looking at accentuated eccentric loading and hypertrophy. Yeah. Results pending. So hopefully that'll be out relatively soon. (laughs) All right. Well, that, that's a perfect segue. Let's turn to AEL then. Let's, let's talk about the load because this is another question that I've always had because, you know, you know, there's a spectrum here with like, you're, you know, a lot of times eccentric emphasis, especially with it comes to like traditional movements, back squat, bench press, RDL, whatever, it is submaximal. And yes, it will feel harder. Like no matter what, it'll feel harder. But does that mean we're actually getting the adaptations we want to see or that we think we're going to see? So talk about that spectrum of loading and then you can you know, dive into the AEL from there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, simply put, when we're talking about traditional training, you know, you, you can't lift more than your max concentrically. So again, if we talk about a, a bench press, a deadlift, you know, a back squat, one of those traditional movements that you'd end up doing in training, you can't lift more than your max. You can't lift more than your max one time either. So um, obviously the emphasis with AEL is being able to place an additional heavier load on the eccentric side of things. So AEL is simply, it has to be defined by three things to be considered AEL. AEL has to have a heavier load on the eccentric phase compared to the concentric phase. Keep in mind, part of that is it obviously falls off. So there's, there's mm. less load on the, on the concentric side of things. The second part of it is that it should be pairing an eccentric and concentric action to benefit the the secondary action there, in this case, the concentric side. So it should have kind of a stretch shortening cycle component. The third component is that it should be able to maintain the natural movement mechanics of the individual and cause minimal disruption to those actual mechanics. This last aspect is where I think we somewhat get it wrong. Not always, but sometimes people talk about the tempo of the actual lowering when it comes to AEL. This is something that we're actually going to be doing a project on relatively soon is kind of the tempo and how it really affects things. But it, you know, when it comes to a spectrum, it comes down to what are you training for? You know, if we, if we emphasize a longer time during the, the eccentric phase, then obviously we're, we're training for more strength, endurance, hypertrophy aspects rather than possibly the rapid force production component of it. So, but for AEL, it comes down to the amount of load that you have in terms of separation, but also how many times you're going to reload things like weight releasers or pick Mm. up dumbbells and do dumbbell jumps or whatever. Yeah. So again, there, there's an entire spectrum of of AEL in general, because there's also what I would call submaximal AEL, maximal AEL and supermaximal AEL. And again, depending on your goals, it's kind of what would dictate what methods you're going to use and the loading you would use. Okay, so let's go ahead and, you know, maybe give some parameters or I guess give some base recommendations or what. Yeah, like if people want to do those three categories that you just mentioned. Are there general recommendations or base recommendations? And then what is the ultimate desired outcome of that method? 
Sure. So if we start on the submaximal side of things, Jeremy Shepard did a lot of the pioneering work with some of this. And what they ended up doing with male volleyball players is they would be holding basically the equivalent of like, you know, change plates or, or something like that in their hands where they would actually lower down during a counter movement, jump, drop the plates and then jump afterwards. So we're doing a similar project right now, kind of looking at the load that someone would be using. So we're mm. looking at body weight percentages. We're looking at back squat percentages on what we would use in terms of what would fall off. In addition, we're also looking at kind of the potentiation aspect of it because they're doing rebound jumps after that first counter movement jump. Okay. Now, what Jeremy Shepard did is they actually used the the dumbbells on every single jump that they that they did. So okay. they were trying to use it primarily just as a training stimulus to see what the acute effects were, but also chronically how it would benefit things like jump height and 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 all of that. So a um, couple things with this is uh, probably from a percentage standpoint, body weight. The literature seems to support that twenty percent of an individual's body weight is the quote unquote optimal load that people are using. Obviously, our research will shed a little bit more light on that to see if 30 is too much or if 10 is not enough. But it also comes down to the parameters you're looking for, because I need someone to be able to produce more force during that braking phase or eccentrically. I need a heavier load. But it also comes down to how you coach someone to drop the dumbbells or Hmm. whatever you may be using, because we have, I'm trying to remember what they're called, but we have the square. Yeah, the hex, hexagonal yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So power blocks. Yeah. We have. The oh, power oh, blocks. oh, yeah. That's definitely um, different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The power block ones. So when they go down and drop them, obviously they're going to stay, hopefully, in one mm-hmm. spot unless they land on a corner or something like that. But there's other people that have setups. I know Matt Hanford and, and them over in the UK actually have ramps. That okay. when they lower, they, you know, they fall down and they run into like a sandbag or something like that. So yeah. we try to, you know, we're using them to drop, but then so they're able to use their arms on each jump every single time afterwards. So, but again, dropping them at the very bottom of the movement naturally, not throwing them, not dropping, and then continuing down farther. Mm-hmm. We want them to drop them at the very bottom of their counter movement. So but again, this type of submaximal AEL is primarily geared toward the more rapid force production component of it because the load is light and we're trying to benefit, again, the stretch shortening cycle on the concentric side of things. So from a mechanistic standpoint, we are looking at you know the braking phase and the concentric phase, but also the subsequent jumps to see if we almost see a potentiation component later on here. So one thing I will mention is uh, we're also looking at men and women with this stuff. We're actually presenting some of this pilot data that we have this summer at NSCA. Awesome. But also we're looking at the differences or we'll be looking at the differences between stronger and weaker individuals as well. Primarily to see, again, as you would expect with a normal concentric load like jump squats and things like that, stronger individuals should be able to handle heavier loads and you know so this isn't groundbreaking stuff but again when it comes to dumbbell jumps or ael jumps yeah this hasn't been done before so we just want to make sure that the trend still follows there yeah absolutely 
So that's submaximal AEL. What I would consider maximal AEL is just as it sounds. It is your max during the eccentric phase. So 100%. Now, I guess before I get into that, with something like a squat, a, a bench press, these are the primary movements that have been researched up to this point, front squat as well. You can use submaximal AEL with weight releasers. It doesn't have to be a hundred percent or more on the bar or with the weight releasers added and everything's there. It can be less than a hundred percent, but it also comes down to what is your goal? Hmm. Because some people just may not be ready to handle yeah. a hundred percent or 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 above a hundred percent. So just a a, a yeah. quick caveat there. But. <laughs> so maximal AEL. We have 100% total. It just as an example, we put 70 or 80% on the bar, and then we're talking 30% or 20% of the total, so equaling 100 with the wheat releasers. So realistically, let's just say for simple math, we have 80% on the bar, 20% on the hooks. That means 10% is on either side. So a couple things here, figuring out where the hooks are actually going to fall off. So if we're talking about a squat, we want people to go through a full range of motion with their squat, their natural squat. So when we familiarize people with this, we figure out where their squat depth is. So now again, if someone goes down and their hamstrings hit their calves, you know, we know it's going to be a low squat. Yeah. We try to get them to fall off above where that position is going to be, but it's not going to be like significantly higher. It's not like they fall off at parallel and then they continue down like much, much farther. We're Mm -hmm. talking like inches. Yeah. But we want to make sure that they do fall off because we've had instances that if anyone has any bar tilt, you'll get one to fall Mm -hmm. off and then the other one won't. Mm -hmm. So the first time I use them, it's it's certainly I, I'm a I'm a guinea pig or yeah a lab rat for my yeah. for everything that I do. So <laughs> I had an instance and in kind of that oh crap moment. Where yeah, one of them fell off and the other one didn't, and I had to dump the bar. So needless to say, it, it, we make sure that we familiarize people quite extensively yeah. when we do this. Yeah, constraints based coaching right there. <laughs> oh, if yeah. you have a, if you have a bar tilt, well. You better even it out or else. (laughs) Well, what's really funny is we had one person during testing who with really light loads on the bar, they'd have a really bad bar tilt. But then as it got heavier, it evened out a little bit more. So interesting. Don't ask me. (laughs) Yeah. You could ask this person. He'd be able to, they'd be able to tell you all about it. But yeah, it was quite the task. So the other thing that I tell people is that when they're using weight releasers during something like a squat is you still have to perform your natural squat. So regardless of what you hear, because you're going to hear the weight releasers hit. Yeah. The problem is that they don't always hit at exactly the same time. You you would want them to, obviously, because they fall off easier. But yeah. if one hits and that's your cue to start going up, the other one may not have fallen off yet. So we just want to make sure that if as long as people do their natural squat and they go all the way down or with a bench press, go all the way down, they're going to fall off. They, they just kind of have to have that trust. Yeah. But again, that's why we familiarize them with submaximal loads before we actually put that on the bar. So, but anyway, after that, the caveat again with AEL is that you're going to have a heavier load. So when you go down, the hooks fall off and then you perform the concentric phase with a lighter load. Now, again, 
some people may view this as a negative of weight releasers that they fall off on one rep and then they're not there for the other ones. So what's your goal? Because my, my goal is to, depending on what the load variation is, may be to focus on the rate of force development component of it. Yeah. So John Wagle, as part of his dissertation, they were doing sets of five. And I think during the first rep, they had, I think, the equivalent of like 115% or, so, or 105 or something. So the weight releasers would fall off, but then they would perform that first rep, obviously without, and then a subsequent four reps with no weight releasers. So the idea is, does it benefit subsequent reps? And what John ended up showing was that the potentiation effects for something like eccentric rate of force development carried over to the subsequent two reps. So the first three reps would actually benefit, but reps four and five would eventually come back to that baseline mm. and not really be any different. So gotcha. most of the time in our research, we use that as kind of a, as our base where we're only yeah. performing three reps total. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, the reasons for this is personally, if I'm going to use this in a phase, I'm not going to do it for a ton of repetitions anyway. So I'm going to keep the repetitions relatively low just to make sure that the quality is there. Yeah, 100%. So obviously, if they fall off in the first one and I'm benefiting eccentric rate of force development, the load on the bar also makes a difference. Because if I go down with 100% and I come up with 50% and so half weight falls off, you go down, you slam on the brakes, and then you stand up right away. You're like, oh, I'm up here already. <laughs> but as long as you're lowering with your natural squat and you slam yeah. on the brakes because it's heavy, mm -hmm. you know, the amount of force that you're creating is generally more than what you would need to create to stand up with yeah. 50%. So as a result, that first rep rate of force development is massive. But then if I'm focused on more of a strength component, I'm going to decrease the the distance between the loading aspects. So in this case, if I'm doing 100% and 80%, where there's only a 20% yeah. difference, now it's more of a strength stimulus rather than rate of force development. Because again, you have to still stop what yeah. that 100% is, but then you actually have to push yeah. against that 80%. And you know, for some people, if they don't actively resist a lot of that first phase, they just get rushed at the bottom because they're just not ready mm -hmm. for the forces that they're ready or that they're supposed to be producing. Now, so again, loading aside, that that's going to be a big caveat as well. And we're doing another project that's very similar from the bench press just to see kind of what the, uh, the loading differences are going to be. So you can take similar principles and apply them to super maximal loads as well. So also a part of our squat project is we're using 110% of someone's max. So as again, as you can imagine, if you step out with the a total of 110%, it's heavy. Yeah. It's obviously more than what someone can do for their one RM. But again, if you go down, slam on the brakes, and you're coming up with 50%, so now 60% falls off, you're like, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> you're like a well, spring. And actually, and actually, some of it, Corey, they would step back with 110% and come up with 40 Oh, so wow. 70% falls off. Yeah. Now, Chris Tabor, who's involved with some of these projects, he would tell you what he did for pilot testing before. And I believe he, the way that he tells the story is that his lab manager said that if, if you ever do that again, I'm leaving. <laughs> so anyway, keeping the loading realistic, because yeah. 
obviously, um, we want to we wanted to see a spectrum of loads on you know what people could possibly do and everything, but keeping it realistic is very it's unlikely that you're probably going to be using squat loads in training that are going to be less than fifty percent. Mm. I mean, you may not even use fifty percent. That may be a warm up set or, or something like that, but. So we did that and we were looking at kind of the loading effect to see how that affected things like breaking forces, duration, concentric forces, and and all this stuff. But again, we're also looking at this over the course of multiple sets. So if we use combinations of, you know, there's research out there that says from Prue Cormie, squat peak power, if you will, occurs at like 56% of 1RM. So what we did is we took 60% on the bar, 100% on the way down, and we did a set of three, weight releaser fell off on the first one, and then we would actually do three sets of that. So are they able to maintain those characteristics over the course of three sets? Yeah. But but then we also looked at it from a strength standpoint where we did three sets again, but it was 100 on the way down and 80 on the way up. So more of a strength type session. Now, again, being able to compare between stronger and weaker people, we'd be able to see if there's actually going to be some some differences there. So, and what we end up seeing correlation wise, and this is in both men and women, stronger individuals during that accentuated eccentric loading are able to produce a much larger breaking impulse compared mm-hmm. to weaker individuals. We're talking like a, you know, a 0.8 something correlation. It's, it's, okay. you know, we haven't done the direct comparison yet, but it is yeah. pretty, pretty sizable. And, um, for men, I think we've had people ranging in relative squat strengths of like two and a half down to like 1.4. So okay. quite a, quite a spectrum there. Yeah. And that's times body weight, right? That's times like body weight. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So again, the ability to produce force and obviously stronger individuals, you would expect that they would be able to produce greater breaking characteristics compared to somebody else who's who's not as strong. So again, everything that we've done research wise is really only looked at the weight releasers falling off on the first rep. Yeah. There is some research that has looked at reloading the hooks multiple times. John Wagle, again, was looking at this in a cluster set format to see if we just do regular cl- cluster sets, no weight releasers at all, compared to AEL1, where they fall off after the first rep and you don't reload them, versus AEL clusters, where you reload them every single time, hmm. kind of what the stimulus is going to be between the three. Now, yeah. as you can imagine, if you reload the hooks every single time, you're going to experience higher forces. Like that's, you know, Newton was a pretty smart guy, right? So (laughs) more more load centrically, you're going to experience that every single time. So I would make the argument that if one of your primary goals is going to be just peak brute force centrically, you could reload the hooks every single time with the understanding that the individual has to be physically able to do Mm -hmm. that. Um, Mm -hmm. You're using a proper rest period and are they technically competent and able to yeah. uh, handle that? Because, yeah. you know, I, I had a conversation with someone on Instagram or something like that. I posted a video of me doing AEL for better or for worse. But then the person commented and said, um, yeah, I usually reload the hooks every single time. And I use, I can't remember, it was like 120 or 130%. 
for uh, for a set of three. And I said, how'd that go for you? And he's like, I think I saw Jesus. (laughs) So, you know, the idea there is that just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that's I feel like that rule just follows in strength and conditioning all over the place. But because they're, you know, with the idea of weight releasers and being able to use them with a, a variety of movements, it doesn't mean that you need to use them. It, it's a it's a possibility. So like Chris Tabor and I, there's a project that we have in review right now that's looking at AEL jump squats and hex bar jumps. So with jump squats, obviously, you have a fairly significant lowering you know, distance and everything. But with hex bar, because of the position of them, the weight releasers are so short mm-hmm. that they may not actually see much benefit from it because you don't have a ton of room to really load them. Right. Or sorry, experience those loads. But yeah, I know that some people were huh. looking at weight releasers with jump shrugs. And so I look at that and I'm like, do we need to do it? And yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because as I'm listening to you talk, the strength coach side of my brain is like, okay, what's the trade-off here of like, if I'm going to like spend the money, spend the time, all that stuff to get to these types of methods or utilize them, do we know that it, it will increase the performance or impact the performance of my athletes to the degree that it it'll make that the methods worth it, I guess is a, I don't know how, you know, I think you know what I'm asking there. Yeah. I mean, so one of the next things on our agenda is a training study. Mm -hmm. So we want to know, like we, again, in theory, acutely cross-sexually, we know that this can work if they're implemented effectively. So one of the things that we want to do is look at kind of the, the, the differences between, you know, not using them versus using them versus really using them like Mm. every week type of thing. So Mm -hmm. how someone implements these longitudinally is going to make a difference in something that we just see cross-sectionally, because obviously there's going to be progressions in terms of weights, possibly volumes, you know, you could still look at this from like a heavy and light standpoint. I know for a fact that the like the researchers at East Tennessee looking at the, the hypertrophy aspect of it is they're doing a lot of cluster set implementation where if they're doing a set of 10, and I don't know if this is the exact yeah. protocol or yeah. anything, but if they're doing a set of 10, they're actually doing five sets of two yeah. where they, you know, the first rep, they fall off, they do a second rep, then they stop, reload the hooks and do that five times. And that's one set. Well, talking with some of the individuals involved with that project, you know, my first question is based on the eccentric load, are your participants, you know, controlling it every single time on the eccentric phase? Because if you use a really heavy, significant load, eventually you're going to fatigue enough that you're not going to be able to handle that. And then you just kind of free fall into the bottom every single time. So this kind of goes back to something we were talking about earlier is the tempo of implementing AEL is something that still needs to be, you know, further discussed. But I would make the argument that if you emphasize too, too long of a tempo on AEL, <laughs> then, then it's not, it may not even be AEL anymore. Sure. Then you're talking about it being a tempo method. You just happen yeah. to have the weight releasers on there. Yeah, there is some research on that that Jamie Douglas has done. Stasinski was an Stasinaki, sorry, I think was another one. 
And the adaptations, as you would imagine, are pretty specific. Yeah. If you do a really slow tempo, you can certainly benefit eccentric strength because you're just under that strain a lot more. But if you do a normal tempo, you know, like a natural squad or something, you can benefit rate of force development to a greater extent because yeah. you have to turn on those forces a lot faster. The caveat to this is that if you don't, if you move too fast and just free fall, you're not actually resisting that external force. So then you're not getting the adaptations. Then the hooks are just there for show. Yeah, exactly. Like the hardest part of that entire thing is just stepping back yeah. and getting steady, right? Yeah. So it's something that huh. needs to be looked at. And I know Chris Tabor and I are going to be doing some more projects on some of the tempo differences and everything. But yeah, it's, it, it, it's a point of contention because some people say that, yeah, you know, we're, we're doing a longer eccentric phase. It's AEL. And I'm like, well, if you do a longer eccentric phase, are you actually benefiting the, you know, the concentric phase? Because then it's going to be harder. But, you know, that, that's that. It's still yeah. it's that conversation that needs to happen. Yeah. And, and it, are you talking, you're talking with the weight releaser still, right? Yeah, yeah. correct. Okay. So yeah. yeah, lowering at a slower tempo yeah. with weight with releasers. Weight releasers. Now, again, you have grad students for a reason, so you don't physically have to do certain <laughs> things, but I actually had one of my grad students do hundred on the way down, 80 on the way up with a normal tempo, like a yep. normal squat. And then I had him do a five second tempo with a hundred percent and then standing up with the, the 80% the 80. afterwards. And as you can imagine, you just don't produce the same amount of forces because if you move at a slow tempo, and this is one of the things I'll be, I, I have a two part talk at national, this national NSCA this summer talking about implementing eccentric training. So small plug there. Yeah. Uh, but the second part of it is it's a bridge of the gap. So the hands-on practical portion is we're going to be doing live testing Ooh, that's with awesome. different eccentric methods to show what, is, what actually is happening on a force plate with these different types of methods. Well, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Come to the NSCA National Conference, Las Vegas, this July. You'll get all the updates on eccentric training. And uh, yeah, Tim, I don't know if you know this. I'm presenting as well. So no, I, 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 are you on the, <laughs> is it part of the research track? Do you know that? No, my, mine will be dietary supplements. So I'm giving a presentation right. on how to, how to evaluate supplements. So, I mean, there's just no reason not to be there. It's a, exactly. the research year. I know I, I'll probably be there. I'd be in the audience for that one because, uh, you know, with, with projects I'm working on, I can always learn more with that too. Yeah. And, uh, come by the human kinetics booth, buy a book. Yes. Yeah. Obviously there's a lot of, a lot of factors and variables with this topic, but you know, my hope and, and our hope is that you are much more familiar with, with it as a whole, what it means, what you can do with it. Go check out Tim's papers. I'll, I'll put those in the show notes as well. And uh, yeah, Tim, anything you you want to kind of leave us with as far as the, as the topic goes before we wrap up today? I would just tell people in general with AEL, I would argue certainly that this is a more advanced training method. This isn't something that, you know, it's kind of like v, VBT in the sense that it's not something you have to use. It's something you kind of get to use later on, to quote Brian Mann. Right. But again, the if you introduce this too early to someone, you may not be able to use it as a novel training stimulus later. 
it, I kind of, I kind of make the joke that you kind of have to get strong first before you get to play with more toys. Hmm. Uh, and you know, not that, you, and again, this isn't saying you have to squat double body weight before you do this. I'm not yeah. saying that at all, but what I am saying is that the person should be uh, technically competent and stable within their technique before you would do something like this. But I would also make the argument that traditional training is probably going to be equally as effective as this method is if you were to introduce them at the exact same time hmm. with the understanding that they need to be able to have the physical ability to resist these heavier external loads. Because what ends up happening is as, as we continue to learn and develop within a motor task itself, if you add too much variability from rep to rep, technique becomes less stable and then ultimately we're not able to produce force as effectively so introducing it to them is fine but also don't feel like you have to do this with every mm. single exercise because yeah. people fall in love with a single method we talked about it with vbt they fall in love with a single method saying like this is the be all end all by no means is this the be all end all yeah for is sure it something you can use yes it's yeah. a tool in our toolbox and should be implemented along with the other methods to fully develop a, you know, wholly holistic develop yeah. an athlete. Yeah, absolutely. And just like, yeah. And then just understand, even if you do it early on, I would, I would imagine you just have to understand what you're going to get from it. You know, if you're using bands, like you mentioned way at the beginning, they're pulling you down. So you have an, an, another element of needing, needing to control that. And very similar to what you just said. A lot of people will say, you know, you've, you've got to have almost like this base of base of technical aptitude or, uh, you know, strength. But I also know some coaches who have used just light bands as a teaching method. Like you mentioned the guy, the kid who, who's squat even now with the weight releasers. So it's just like, you got to understand what you're going for. What, what are you using? And, and then understanding what you're ultimately going to get out of it. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there's low hanging fruit to, to e-centered training, but the, the low hanging fruit for most people is basic plyometrics and the ability to land and stop yourself. Hmm. So e-centered training again is a massive spectrum. So yeah, 100%. Um, methods that you can use initially are, you know, landing off of a box bilaterally, unilaterally stopping yourself from a linear sprint, stopping yourself during change direction like that. And you can do that without any equipment whatsoever. But then if you add in things like tempos, tempos, you may be able to do that just to work on positional awareness yeah. of where mm -hmm. someone is in space. Absolutely. And from a novice standpoint, it's, it's a massive benefit to, and again, it may actually improve the range of motion, <laughs> you know, going through, <laughs> yep. these, going through these types of things. But then even if you didn't have dumbbells that you could drop, you could use paint cans. Just make sure that they're evenly loaded. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, I mean, there's there's all sorts of things that you can use for these types of tools, especially with individuals who are more on the novice side of things. Before you even add things like J-hooks or weight releasers, you can use submaximal methods relatively easily. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, Tim, man, I, I so appreciate your time today. And yeah, if you, anyone's coming to the NSCA conference this summer, uh, you know, stop either one of us. We love to chat. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. 
The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.